Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag. Each according to his ability. That's a very significant phrase. Then he went on his journey. And the man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. Also, the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Let me pause there for just a moment to give you a little bit of a Jewish background on that particular verse. It is in rabbinical writings that the best way to safeguard your money is to bury it. So it was not unusual when Christ introduced this scenario into this parable that one man chose just to go bury the money. They were taught culturally that that was a good way to safeguard it. Verse 19, after a long time the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold, see I've gained five more. His master replied, well done good and faithful servant, you've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I've gained two more. His master replied virtually the same thing. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. Now how many of you know people that you almost summarize them? Their expectations are unrealistic. Obviously this man did not reap where he did not sow. But sometimes people are just so hard. Their expectations are so high that You think that they expect the impossible. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. Now you would expect that the man wanted his master to be happy. The master was not happy at all. His master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. Doesn't that seem like kind of a harsh response to the man who brought back the man's money. He could have expressed some disappointment, but when he responds, he said, you wicked, you lazy servant, you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seeds. So 
that's in the form of a question. In other words, what he's saying is, if that's really what you thought of me, if you thought I was that hard, what made you think I was going to be happy with you doing nothing with what I entrusted to you? So the man was not admitting that he actually harvests where he not sowed. He just, it's for the sake of the argument. Then he says, so that's what you thought of me? And this you do? Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you can see at the end of that parable that the language changes a little bit and Jesus starts speaking more in terms of what will happen at the great judgment than what that master actually did. Uh, we're not to believe that that master in the story told everybody else, go out and burn this guy. So he, he switched over to the eschatological aspect. And once again, I apologize for the word, but I want you to get used to it. The end time aspect of this. That that's the way God is going to judge us if we prove to be unfaithful servants. Now we've been doing the three-point parables. We have virtually finished with what we call the simple three-point parables. And now we're getting into what we want to call the complex three-point parables. This one is not quite as straightforward, not quite as simple in the outline as the others, but it still very definitely brings out three points. Uh, so just to give you a map of where we're going today, I'm going to share those points ahead of with, with you. And that the first point will very simply be that God entrusts each one of us with a portion of his resources. You can be thinking about what has God entrusted to me, but I hope we can enlarge on that. The second one is that faithful stewards will obviously be commended. Unfaithful stewards will be punished. I take you back to that beginning where Jesus says again, it will be like, and we are referring back to the parable that preceded that when Jesus more explicitly said the kingdom of God is like. And then he comes to this one and says, and again, it will be like the kingdom of God or the truths that are within the kingdom of God. So again, it's going to be like this man that goes on a journey and entrusts his servants with various uh, amounts of his own resources and tests them and commands them, I want you to work my money. The first thing I want to talk about is it's very clear from this that Jesus is explaining we will receive each according to our abilities. God knows what your abilities are. And your abilities may be based on what you have developed. And it may be what you were born with. And if God has not entrusted me with much, as much as I can see he's entrusted somebody else with, it's simply because I'm not capable of being trust, entrusted with what somebody else have been entrusted with. 
And Paul summarized an important point of good stewardship in his letter to the Corinthians. And we studied Corinthians not long ago. You'll remember this. He said in that fourth chapter, Now, moreover, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. So whatever God has given us, he expects us to prove faithful in being entrusted, each according to our abilities. The second thing I want to derive from that is the implication that we are not all created with equal abilities. Now we make a big deal in America of uh, all men are created equal. Uh, all humanity is created equal in this politically sensitive culture that we're living in. But equality in rights is not equality in ability. So we're not all created equal in abilities. There are some people who are born geniuses. I was not. I can harp all I want about that's not fair. But it doesn't improve my status one bit. I always wanted to be a part of athletics when I was in high school. I was not blessed to be a great athlete. I just simply wasn't. I had the heart. I had the passion. I just wasn't blessed. My future was not in the NBA for obvious reasons. Nor the NFL for obvious reasons. Nor was I destined to be a sumo wrestler. I think the diapers had something to do with that, but thank God for his mercy and grace. <laughs> but there's just certain things that some people are gifted or they develop themselves to be able to do that other people cannot do. Born with the attributes or you develop the attributes. Some people have very natural music ability. They just seem to be able to pick up almost any instrument and, and master it. And others that they can't, as they say, carry a tune in a bucket. It, for some reason, it just doesn't click with them. Just something as simple in music as tempo. Some people have a very natural sense of rhythm. And then every once in a while, you might see somebody in a congregational setting like this that rhythm doesn't click with them. They, they can't clap on time. They can't clap off time. It just, it just doesn't quite click with them. It's, sometimes that's what you're born with. Sometimes that's what you develop. But we're different, aren't we? So God entrusts us with what he thinks we can be trusted with. And that's a little bit humbling for me because uh, sometimes I think much more of myself than I am. Do you? Well, God, I, I'm better than this. You can trust me with more. But God knows that that is a pure, uh, unmistakable assessment. That he, God says, you can do this. Now, that works two ways. Sometimes he only trusts me with things less than what I think I can do, in which case I feel somewhat insulted. God, I can do better than this. And sometimes, because I'm really hard to please, he entrusts with me with more than I think that I can do. 
And I fuss at God about that as well. Lord, you're giving me way more than I can handle. But God knows, doesn't he? Whether you can do a little, whether you can do a lot, it's, it's, it's a real telling revelation. What have you been entrusted with? Each according to his ability. Now, if it's what you've been born with, that's beyond your control. You just have to accept it, what you've been born with. You've been faithful with a few things. It says in this parable that I read, uh, I'm going to put you in charge of many things. Now that is under your control. What God decides he can entrust you with and what you do with it, that is totally under your control. You are responsible for that. Therefore, the master was right within his rights in judging each servant because he entrusted them according to what he knew they could do. And the question was, did you do what I asked you to do? The second point is simply that faithful stewards will be commended. It's a very simple point. God expects an effort. You have to try. You have to do something. These bags of gold were put in the possession of the man's servants, each according to their ability. But they were given a command. I want you, I'm putting you in charge of my money. Notice, he did not say, it's not implied in the parable, I am asking you to watch my money. I'm asking you to safeguard my money. When he said, I'm putting you in charge of my money, the implication in the parable is, I am giving you control over this portion of my finances. And that doesn't mean sit on it. It doesn't mean hide it. I am putting you as the manager of portions of my finance. And the implication is, do something productive with it. Now, this... This principle of being productive for God is abundant in Scripture and in Christ's teaching as well. Good stewardship requires wise investment. So we look at the example and just point out a couple of them. And you may have others come to your mind as well. Jesus found this barren fig tree and he cursed it causing it to wither and die because he expected something out of this fig tree that was not there. He expects productivity. We also are reminded of Jesus telling the parable of the vineyard owner who threatened to cut down this barren fig tree and the caretaker bargained with him and he said don't do it yet. Give me a chance. I'm going to fertilize it. I'm going to water it. I'm going to take care of it. And then, after all my effort goes into it, if it doesn't bring forth anything, then obviously there's nothing left to do but just cut it down. It's another example of Jesus demonstrating this principle in the kingdom. God expects effort. He expects you to put forth something. God gives the increase. We sow we water, but if we don't so, no, so when we don't water, we are not responsible for 
God providing an opportunity for increase. We have to do our part. And then you remember the ministry of John the Baptist. And he came along and he said, the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Everyone that does not bring forth good fruit is going to be cut down and thrown into the fire in the third chapter of Matthew where John said that. And then Jesus reiterated that almost verbatim in the seventh chapter of Matthew when he also said every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You got the John the Baptist, you got Jesus, both promoting this concept of productivity investment. And I'm going to modify that just a little bit because... Uh, I, well, when I get to it, I'll talk about the productivity part of it. But these are where God, God clearly expects effort to be put forth. Now, it, it may please you and surprise you that we're already on point number three. But do not be deceived. I've got lots to say under point number three. So don't be packing up yet. Wicked servants will be punished. When we view this passage in Matthew in conjunction with the passage, the parallel, a similar passage in Luke 19, uh, we get a clear sense of two things that come out of the comparative parallel reading of both. And the first uh, is that there's a certain amount of risk that was permissible. We can reasonably be assured that careless risk was not permissible. But there's a certain amount of calculated risk that was permissible. The master knew managing his money involved some risk. Just don't be stupid about it. Faithful stewardship and good stewardship bore positive results, but it also involved taking a little bit of risk. If you're playing your life too safe for God, you're probably not pleasing God. We've got people in Christianity that hesitate to step out for God because there's a risk. They're afraid for whatever reason. Personally afraid of being embarrassed or afraid of their inabilities. But the fear that paralyzes us and keep us, keeps us from any risk whatsoever puts us in the position of the unfaithful servant that we eventually stand before God and God with his deep penetrating gaze stares into you and says what did you do for me and if your only reply is nothing I was scared to death you don't want to be there you would rather be there instead of trying a lot of things for you God some of them didn't work out too well. I don't think God's going to be near as hard on that person who made some effort, who took some risk for him, as opposed to the person who simply refused to do anything, paralyzed by fear. The second thing we learn by comparing these two accounts from Luke and from Matthew is that stewards were entrusted to manage, not hide his wealth. Now, keep in mind when Jesus spoke this parable in the account in Matthew, 25th chapter, at this point, he's speaking to his disciples. It's always important to know who the audience is. Now, keep in mind when studying your Bible, context is everything. Context is king. Write that down. 
repeat it, do whatever you have to do, put it in the margins of your Bible, context is king. Because when we make most of our mistakes in Christianity and in Bible study is whenever we do proof texting. Now that's a new phrase I'm introducing to you. I don't mean to dazzle you with new phrases. I want to explain proof texting to you. And then if you've been guilty, you can go home and repent. Or better yet, you can come here and repent. And I'll pray with you. Proof texting is merely finding an isolated passage of Scripture that proves your point. And, it, and you don't bother to even find out the context in which this was written because on the surface of it, it looks like it's very useful for you. One of those instances of proof texting could be from somebody who personally believes that women should not say anything in church. They should not have any ministry. They should not have any kind of uh, position, any kind of leadership. And proof texting would be going back to the writings of Paul and saying, I, I uh, want women to be silent in church. That's proof texting. It doesn't consider the culture. It doesn't consider the context. Why Paul would say that under what conditions? What did he mean when he said that? It just simply says, Paul says, women should remain silent in church. That's proof texting. Now we don't want to do that. We want to get context. So the context of this is that Jesus is speaking to his disciples, not to the Jewish leaders at this time. So when the disciples hear this parable that he's teaching specifically to them, and unlike some of the other parables in which Jesus was speaking to Jewish leaders, those Jewish leaders oftentimes were being rebuked by the truths of the parables. These disciples were being instructed on how they could be good stewards in the kingdom and how Jesus was very clearly telling them, I don't want you to be paralyzed by fear. And I don't want you to take what has been entrusted to you and just go hide it and do nothing with it. Jesus equipped his disciples, his followers. If you follow through the story of Jesus picking up disciples and training them, you see where he equipped them with different things from time to time. And then he expected them to go out and do something with those things. And when he comes to this parable, which falls toward the end of Jesus' ministry, he's giving them a very powerful reminder. What I have given you, what I have entrusted you, how I have trained you, I expect you to go invest that in the kingdom. I can do something with your investment. Put it at risk. Try something. How many of you have ever thought there was an opportunity to pray for somebody, but you were scared to step out and pray? You know, can you relate to what the parable is saying here? Well, what if nothing happens? Well, I can guarantee you nothing will happen if you don't do something. It's your responsibility to, to sow. You have to put the seed in the ground. You have to take the risk. God is not obligated always to do everything you think he's going to do. But if you're not giving God an opportunity, you are that. Well, Jesus said it, that wicked, lazy servant. that we're going to haul out and throw on the trash heap and burn. Or God is. We have to be willing to step out without being foolish about it. We're talking about nothing, nothing in foolish risk, but just being able to minister. I had a deacon tell me the story about there was a healing evangelist that came to our little church in California. 
I brought him in. But he had been there before, before I became the pastor. And it just so happened that this man was listed in Encyclopedia Britannica as an example of a healing evangelist. Uh, you've probably never heard of him. I had not heard of him before. But he had some notoriety. Very humble man. And so my deacon is telling me that when this evangelist came the last time, he came to him and he said, I've got a friend that needs prayer, needs healing. Would you come with me? And this healing evangelist said, you do it. God doesn't need me. You do it. So the deacon was kind of knocked back on his heels. Uh, I, we got this, this powerful healing evangelist, has all these successes, and I get him. I want him to come and, and, and go for it. And he makes me do it. So what's the purpose of having him here? It's kind of like sometimes people's attitude about the pastor. You know, why should we go out and do ministry? We've got a pastor that does that. Because the pastor's job is to equip the saints. So this deacon, he said, okay. So went over to this woman's house with his wife and said a simple prayer and God miraculously healed that woman. And the deacon was just astounded. Well, I thought that was pretty cool. So I went to my next church, and I had a deacon come to me. I, I could see how this was all setting up for a perfect opportunity. And he said, Pastor, he said, this man that we golf with, his name was Jim. This, this man we golf with, he's not a Christian, but he said he's in the hospital. And he's having very major surgery. And he said, some of us, the, the buddy golfers are going to go down and see him. We would like you to go with us. Because he really needs the Lord and minister to him. And I was ready. I said, you do it. <laughs> I'd already learned this fun lesson. He said, what? I said, you do it. I said, you've golfed with him. He's your friend. You've known him for years. I said, this is an opportunity for you. So he, he's kind of like the other deacon. He said, he didn't know what to make of this. I thought, you know, we hired you for stuff like this. No, you hired me to equip the saints. So... He agrees, and hesitatingly, he goes down to Fresno, goes to the hospital, walks in there, talks with Jim, and leads Jim to the Lord. Jim was in church. When he got out, the first Sunday he was out of church, Jim was in church, stayed in church, died in church. <laughs> uh, he didn't have many years left. But the years he was left, he got in church and served the Lord because somebody who was huddling in fear was challenged. You've got to step out. You've got to take the risk. You know, what God can do through you. It's not just about coming to church and watching. I wonder what God's going to do through the pastor today. God's going to do through the staff today or through the worship team. What can God do through you? Are you huddling in fear? Take a risk. Get out there. Let God do something through you. Find out it's all God anyway. It's not you. He just wants vessels he can work through. I guess the shocking part of this story is this harsh rebuke of the master accusing the servant of being a complete and utter failure. But remember, Jesus is making a point about our responsibilities before God. Here is an important point. God is not as worried about your success as he is your obedience. And that's what I told you I was going to come back to a while ago. And I said, I'm going to talk to you about the results, the fruitfulness. 
He wants you to do what he said. The results are up to him. So he, he told the servant, manage my money. And what the servant did was not that he invested it and failed to bring a return. It's that he disobeyed what his master had told him. Manage it. Do something with it. Take a risk with it. And the servant comes back and said, I, I couldn't. I just had this picture of you being this harsh man that can't be pleased. And I was scared to death of you. And the master said, if you were scared of me, then why are you coming before me now and admitting you disobeyed me? He played this right back in the servant's face. Of course, he had no answer for that. If you truly feared me, you wouldn't be coming in here and telling me you blatantly disobeyed me. He considers his master this stern, strict, harsh, cold, austere man. The kind of man that I said that he says this, this man has unrealistic expectations. He just can't be pleased. And I think sometimes people think that God's like that. Now, parables don't break down as having a parallel application for every single detail. God is not a harsh and a cold and an austere man. But a lot of people think he is. A lot of people fear God and are afraid to step out for him because afraid, what if I fail? God's a harsh God. He, he can zap people like a bug zapper. Pulverize them. Why should I want to take any kind of a chance with a God like this? But they've got the wrong concept of God. This manager, this, this owner, this master evidently was a reasonable man as the people come back with an increased investment. He says, that's good. I've got a reward for you. Enter into my joys. We're going to party. Good job. He was evidently a fair person. People don't always see God as a fair God. But when God gives us a clear instruction, you only have one choice. You have to obey. You do not want to stand before God and tell him, here's the reason I didn't do what you expected me to do. And make up whatever excuse you want to do. It won't fly with God. Well, God, I was afraid it was going to fail. God's response is, that's not your business. Your business is to do what I say. The results are up to me. Now my conclusion. What else has God entrusted to our stewardship? I, I think obviously this parable puts it in the context of finances. So we cannot bypass that. But God has entrusted your abilities to you. It's a gift from him to you. Whatever your talents are, if you let those go to waste, you'll have to reckon with God for that. You know, there was a young girl in our youth group just a few years back that had an exceptional singing voice. And we tried ever so hard to get her involved in something in singing in the church. Once in a while, some child comes along that they just, just excel. I don't mean they were decent. I mean good. And I even took this young girl home in the bus a few times. 
maybe Joe was driving, maybe I was in the van, I can't remember, but we were riding, and I would say, God wants to use you. You know what the response was? Ain't no way I'm getting up in front of that church singing. I'm just not going to do it. You know what? I said, you can be like that, but if you let God's gift go to waste, you will have to stand before God and give an explanation why you can go around singing all these worldly songs and trying to imitate all these people, and you cannot give one bit of your talent to God. Now, what a waste. What a waste. How many of you would make a promise to God today? If God gave me that kind of voice, I promise I would stand on the platform and sing to His glory. How many of you would promise that? How comes I'm not getting more takers? <laughs> I have completely failed in this sermon. Why not? God, if you would bless me with that. I, I'm beginning to see where the problem is today. Come on, people. Let's be real. If God would bless you, would you use it for his glory? I'm getting better response now. I certainly would. I do it even when he didn't bless me. That kind of bores people sometimes. <laughs> I pretend like he did. And so all these things that God has blessed us with. But let's not ignore the very clear and simple fact that's in your face that this is partially at least about finances, okay? Is that all right? Now, this concept of reciprocal generosity, where God gave you, therefore he expects you to give somebody else. This example of reciprocal generosity. You don't hoard it. If you receive, freely received, you what? You freely give. And you know, this, this, this concept, sometimes it escapes little children. Have you ever noticed that? And I'm not trying to pick on my grandchildren. I, I've seen this in all children, but I see it in my grandchildren every once in a while. Because Nana and Papa's house is kind of like a, a wide open area. They waltz in. They go to the refrigerator. They get what they want. They check the pantry. They, they invade everything. They find cookies. They find candy. They find uh, apple juice. And they help themselves. Because we have cultivated this, this culture in our house where what's ours is yours. But once they get it, it's theirs. And I have to referee this. Now, wait a minute. I was not stingy in sharing with you. What is this about you laying claim to something and little sister or little brother can't have any or the cousin can't have any? No, it's mine. Well, let's settle this. It's mine. And until you learn this principle of reciprocal generosity, if you have freely received, freely give, we're not going to do this anymore. When you learn that I share freely, you share freely. I said I see it in children, but the sad part is I see it in adults. I've got this huge problem. Now I get to talk about tithing. Whose money is that? How much of it's God's? Oh, I love that. All of it. How much does he ask you to bring back? Just a portion of it. I understand tithing is legally, literally an Old Testament concept. There is no 10% that is fixed on the New Testament. But we, 
saints, but we, we have adopted that just as a guide to keep us honest before God. If they could do it in the Old Testament, and this is a much better testament, we can do it too. So if somebody would want to argue tithing is not a New Testament concept, no, but generosity is. So we've adopted this very convenient rule of tithing. And if, if it's all God's anyway, because you see, if you're a child of God, you have this mentality, everything I have is God's. If you don't have that mentality, then we need to change your way of thinking. Because your thinking might be, now wait a minute, Pastor, I went out and worked for that. Yes, you did. Who gave you that talent? Well, wait a minute. I did. I worked hard to study that. Who gave you the brain power to be able to learn that? Who gives you the breath that you breathe? You're, you're breathing borrowed air. Uh, you don't own any air. It's God's. You know, when you want to trace it back, it all comes from God as the source. And if you understand God is the source of everything, even if you had to work hard to learn, he gave you the mind to be able to do that. He gave you the good health to be able to get out of bed and go to work. He gave you all of the tools and resources necessary to make that happen. So when it all boils down to it, it all comes from God. Freely you have received freely give. So I don't understand the concept of anybody who freely receives from God and then closes their fist and say, but I will not share with anybody else. And I will not share with God because I have to pay bills. God can fix that. There's a number of ways not to have any bills. You just go broke and you don't own anything. You don't owe anything. I don't think any of the people under the bridge downtown have any bills. I had a man come to me one time, and he said, uh, you know, I was, it was real easy for me to tithe when I wasn't making much money, because, you know, a dollar's not much on ten. Ten's not much on a hundred, but he said, I'm making so much money now, I find it hard to tithe. I said, well, let's pray about that. I said, Lord, lower his income. <laughs> Get it down there where he can afford to tithe again. Let me share with you, I've got just a couple of minutes left in case you're getting bored. Most pollsters agree that perhaps as little as 10% of all Christians tithe. But here's some interesting statistics. People who tithe are 40% less likely than the average churchgoer to owe significant debt. Only half as likely, people who tithe are only half as likely to be overdue in their credit cards. People who tithe are twice, twice as likely to be entirely debt-free. 28% versus 13%. And consider the possibilities if everybody understood tithing. Freely you have received, freely give. Here's the possibilities. Let me just throw some things out here. If every Christian tithe, there'd be an additional $165 billion for ministry. $25 billion could be applied towards relieving global hunger, starvation, deaths uh, from preventable diseases in five years. $12 billion 
could eliminate illiteracy in five years. $12 billion just applied towards that. Church could do that. We're all talking talking about the, the, why doesn't the government do more? Why don't they give away free education? Why don't Christians do something? Why don't they tithe? And why don't they do something about this? We could eliminate illiteracy in five years if everybody tithed. $15 billion could solve the world's water and sanitation issues where people would no longer have to drink contaminated, dirty water. Christians could do that. $1 billion could fully fund all overseas mission work. And 100 billion or 110 billion would still be left over for additional ministry expansion. So, see, and we know stewardship's not only about money, but it's also about money. You've been blessed, obviously, with a good mind. Maybe you've been blessed with good health. But what are, you, what are you doing with your mind? Are you feeding it garbage? What are you doing with your health? Are you, are you wrecking your health? Are you a good steward of the health God has given you? Or are you just wrecking it? You'll stand before God for what he has blessed you with. We don't live for our own pleasure. We live for God's glory. And when we stand before God, he will ask us, every one of us, he will ask you, what did you do with what I gave you? If you did not manage God's resources all the way from your health to your talents to your mind to your money, if you wasted it all on yourself, if you refused to risk investing it for failure, it's going to be a harsh judgment. And the old saying says, only one life will soon be passed. And only what's done for Christ will last. You may bow your heads.